Welcome to Creative Coding Podcast, episode eight. Nine. With me, Ian Log. Episode nine. Oh, crap. Let's <laughs> fine, just leave it in. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Creative Coding Podcast, episode nine, with your hosts, Ian Log. And Sebley Delisle, live from New York City. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Cool, and I'm not going to be on this podcast much because this podcast is a special episode featuring an interview between Seb and Robert Hodgin. Robert Hodgin, aka Flight 404, um, who is a very talented generative art guy and makes very beautiful images and videos. Yeah, so I caught up with Robert when I was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to him about how he got started in this industry and what inspires him now and a bit about his creative process so then I can just play it in from now I guess. Don't you want to say? I could say here it is. Yeah you should say that. <laughs> so here it is. <laughs> how are you doing Robert? I'm doing well. What have you been up to? A lot of things. Too much travel, mm-hmm. new startup, more travel, new iPad app, cat. A cat. A new cat. No, same old cat. He's exhibiting uh, new behaviour lately. Really? Yeah. What? He likes to sit on my feet while I'm um, in the bathroom <laughs> sitting. <laughs> he just comes in and sits on my feet. Is that a bit distracting? A little it bit. might put me off. It, yeah. It, it's not cute anymore. <laughs> it's just awkward because what are you trying to tell me? So tell me about It's Bloom, isn't it? Your yes. new startup. I don't really know that much about it, is it? So you're going to have to explain that, I'm afraid. Okay, uh, let's see. Bloom, uh, or Bloom Studio INC, is um, working on creating new experiences for mobile and for desktop that combine data visualization with uh, the theories and processes found in video game design. Okay. Which is a little awkward to picture. Yeah. But you kind of um, need to show me some pictures. Well, part of the reason that we wanted to make an iPad app to begin with is it is a kind of a difficult thing to explain to people how to make data visualization uh, more immersive and mm. uh, aesthetically pleasing, like some video games can be. So we wanted to make a proof of concept prototype app uh, so that we could show investors or anybody who might be interested in just so they can put the pieces back together in their brain and say, oh, oh, now I see what you guys are up to. Awesome. And what sort of data are you working with? Uh, So the first app we made is just visualizing the data from the iPad's music library. So it's not an audio visualization because that's still not really possible on the iPad. It's uh, it's a different way to browse your music library. Um, Next, we're probably going to be working on... um, finding ways to browse video data from either Netflix or Vimeo, something with a public API, and then uh, see where we go from there. How did you get involved with this project? Was it your idea? No, no, not my idea. Uh, I'm the fourth person. I'm the fourth Bloom, Bloomer, Mm. Bloomian. And it's uh, Bloom.io, but don't pronounce it Bloomio. Bloomio, (laughs) Which many people are making the mistake of doing. So how did they tempt you in then? So you just think it was a really cool thing to work on? So I'm, I'm a part of this group called Ooh Shiny, oh, which yes. is, uh, it's just, it started out just as a few uh, San Franciscans who all use processing, getting together at coffee shops and talking about what they've been doing. And it sort of blossomed into a, a larger multinational mailing list that has, uh, we have meetings in San Francisco f- semi-regularly, where it's just an elaborate show and tell. Uh, so one of the Ooh Shiny guys wanted to rent... Uh, a space 
where he could have a bunch of the Ushiny people show up and rent desks mm-hmm. for cheap, just so there's more of a, a collaborative spirit in attempt to try to bring us all together under one roof. So uh, they had two uh, offices with doors up front, um, and I was asked if I wanted to rent one of those because the guy who, st- who sort of initiated this whole thing knew that I was getting tired of working out of my apartment every day. Mm. So I agreed to a two-month test rental of the front office. The other office was already being rented out by Bloom, yeah. who is uh, Ben Servini and Jesper Anderson and Tom Carden. You might know Tom. Mm. He's a fellow Brit. I mean, I know pretty much all the English people. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's not I'm, a very big I'm sure island. I've known him. <laughs> So you were working in this sort of co-working space and you got to know them. and Yes, and uh, so they asked if I wanted to do a freelance job for them uh, and the assignment was to find a way to visualize a music library on iPad. And at the time, I'd been interested in learning iPad dev, but uh, there were certain aspects about Objective-C and provisioning profiles and all that crap. Yeah, that, it's really boring. Yeah, it's really it's not only boring, but it's almost like they made it extra confusing to try to keep the... the, 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 uh, the I don't know, the, you have the to, sloppy you have, coders out. Yeah, yeah, it's like you have to really want it. You have to really you want it. You have to it. really want it. I mean, I, I'm not cynical enough to think that that was their, <laughs> their motivation, although it is tempting it to is think tempting that. To but think I that. do think it's just Apple's dirty junk room. It's yeah. where all their, you know, all their surface public stuff is all shiny and great and works really easily. And this is a, and a, a small window into, stuff, yeah. They're just like, oh, screw it it's the rough programmers will be fine it I'll was deal rough with it. this is my second uh, foray into the world of app store and the first one I just let the person that I was working with at the time Bill handle all of the provisioning profile and certificates and distributions because I couldn't make sense of it the thing is I went through it once right it was a massive pain yes. I did everything wrong screwed <laughs> it up had to re-deliver it it's like but that was a while ago I've totally forgotten everything that I've done now so I know that I'd have to kind of start from scratch and just you would and there's you know, there's little tutorials that walk you through it, but even if you follow every step exactly, you're going to get a weird error message. Uh, so I started working on this iPad app, and it was going really well. And uh, I kind of like the concept that Bloom is trying to push because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a gamer. I like, I like the video games. Yeah. I, I like them for their aesthetic appeal. Like, you know, I get into Call of Duty, and the first thing I do is go see what the smoke effects look like, or like how do they do water, um, and of course I'm getting shot the whole time so I'm not very good <laughs> but I like the immersive quality of them and it'd be nice to see that put to use uh, for something other than just violence uh, mm. for the sake of headshots uh, and uh, so they extended me a full-time offer and I took it because it seemed like a reasonable thing to do so you're working there full-time I'm now. full-time and how does that you know do you still have time to do your own sort of art projects well see that's the, that's the beauty of this particular <laughs> job is basically what they want me to do is the stuff that I normally do and then they're going to help find ways to tie it in with data <laughs> so you just do whatever you want well no, I mean it's, it's not quite that freeform I mean they did give me an assignment and uh, you know I couldn't just turn it into random art project but I'm right. you know I'm fascinated by uh, by this particular project so it was it was fun to work on it until four in the morning for mm. you know six weeks straight because that's what I would have been doing in my own time anyway yeah sure I mean I wouldn't mind going back a bit actually because um, back. you know we had when we had Jer on um, you know I thought it was quite interesting his transition from a someone who made flash banner ads yeah. into where he is now uh. and then, so I'm kind of keen to 
because you've done a similar thing, right? I'm I not did. Sure if you ever make banner ads, but you sent me. Oh no, that was yeah. That's the whole sordid tale as to why I um, I stopped using Flash. It's because of banner ads. It's because of banner ads. See, banner ads. Flash banner ads is responsible for all of the digital artists, maybe. Pretty much. I think I... This is a theory that needs to be explored. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the problem for me is uh, at the time I was with Barbarian Group still, and uh, you know probably about. Three years in, uh, rich media banner ads were becoming all the rage, and everybody. So, so Barbarian was like the agency that you start. Yes, you started I was up one of the founding company. partners right. of Barbarian back in two thousand, uh, December two thousand and one. And of course, now very big and successful. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they're they're definitely bigger than they were when I was last with them. Uh, I parted ways with them uh, about a year and a half ago, and mm-hmm. um, and I think they've since doubled the number of employees. But part of that is because they got purchased by sure. a Korean advertising agency. Uh, so at the time, I was I was the flash banner guy. I got really good at doing, <laughs> you know, eight different sizes of one banner treatment. <sighs> And uh, I was, you know, I was turning them over really quick. And as you probably know, banner ads, though frustrating, are pretty lucrative for the amount of work that goes into them. Yeah. Um, and it started to occur to me that we were getting more and more banner ad jobs because we were really good at producing banner ad jobs. And um, and I got, I got tired of of the whole banner ad scene as probably aren't surprised to hear. So I decided that the the solution was to make make myself lose that ability by, I I just stopped using Flash entirely, uh, and I focused entirely on processing because I wanted to be able to do more, um, like, installation work or just anything that didn't have to live in a browser. I was, I I just wanted a break from from Flash uh, browser-based experiences, so I managed to unlearn all the ActionScript I knew. I mean, it it disappeared like a foreign language that you don't use. It just, within six months, I didn't know how to, yeah, it just went away, which was awesome for me because that meant I didn't have to do banner ad jobs anymore. Ultimately, not a very Are you sure nice you thing just to do. Pretending? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Rob, you just do this banner ad. I want banner love ads. to, but how do you, what do you use to make those? Exactly. Do I need to like get a, a library? What's Flash? What's Flash? And you oh, can like, program like with that? Go to and play? <laughs> did you forget it or did you just blank it out? Uh, it started out as me blanking it out. <laughs> and then uh, I think at some point, uh, I was helping somebody out with a flash job, and I realized just how much I had forgotten. Sure. So it wasn't that I put it aside so that I could go use it later. It just, it and, just and went this away. was before AS three as well, right? So this it was before AS three. Yeah. At that point. Well, I was also uh, I just wasn't a very good coder. I stuck with AS one for an extremely long time after AS two came out, even right. though everybody was all about AS two. And then AS three came out, and I was still barely using AS two and. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of the problem is you weren't really allowed to be up to date on that stuff because you had to wait for browsers. With and, banners. Yeah, with banners. Very much so. You had to go right back. To exactly. Yeah. You know, AS3 would be out, but the banner buy would be for AS1, yeah, and there was nothing you could do about it. Mm. Um, so uh, I never learned AS3, and the little bits I did learn of AS2 made me realize that it wasn't that different from what processing had. Uh, so that made mm. the leap into processing that much easier because it... Um, uh, processing really was for the first time made me realize that programming languages aren't that different from each other. I yeah. thought if you learn Java, you might as well never learn C++ because there's going to be no overlap. Yeah. But much of it is the same, and it yeah. made transitioning that much easier. I mean, that's what I find now as well, especially with you know a lot of the Flash community are branching out into lots of different things. 
and that's what I'm, you know, I'm just saying it. People are scared that they'll have to start from scratch, but yeah. they don't, do they? It's all the same stuff it's, that we're yeah, it's, doing. It's similar enough. You you have to find new ways to find answers to the questions that you can't answer yourself. But yeah. you know, just find the right forum, and suddenly you're an expert. <laughs> so with processing, you just decided to work in processing yeah. at Barbarian. I mean, were they cool with that? You were just like, well, I was. I'm going to do these <laughs> projects from now on. They, I have to say, I was, um, I was very sort of blessed to be in that company with that gang because they were very understanding. They, we sort of got together and had one of those partner powwows that happened, you know, every six months where mm-hmm. we talked about what it is we wanted to be doing with our career. And I said that I, I would be happy if I never had to open Flash again. I'm like, all right, let's figure out how to make that happen. And so we, we tried to track down a bunch of installation work, uh, and we got. You know, really close on a lot of them, but at that time the money just wasn't there for. Uh, you know, it's like it was a few years after the the second bubble had burst, mm. and uh, so we'd get these uh, requests for job proposals of you know like three hundred thousand dollar jobs, and then you know we'd go through several rounds of approval, and then they'd kill the job because they realized that three hundred thousand was not a good for one installation was not a good use of their money. So yeah. it wasn't even that we were losing the jobs to other people; it's just that. The leads that we had kept changing their mind, uh, and that was frustrating for me because I really wanted to try to make uh, my decision to turn my back on Flash. I wanted that to be lucrative really quick, yeah. but it just took a really long time. But um, So would you still take these projects on even though they were small fees, or did you just not manage to do them at all? We, I mean, we did a few. We did a few. They weren't... You know, most of them were in the realm of audio visualization stuff, like mm-hmm. somebody would want uh, audio visuals for a, a touring concert, so we'd make an app that they could use and reuse. And yeah, um, and you know, we did something for Next Fest with uh, with Good B Silverstein, which was fantastic and still probably one of the more rewarding jobs I did at Barbarian. It was that big uh, grass wall, interactive grass yeah. wall, and that was that really sort of wet my appetite for doing experiential projects i mean quite a simple concept but just very simple concept right simple concept very effective and just Mm -hmm. seeing people interact with your work is was a nice treat because with browser-based stuff you're not often there when they first (laughs) view it and so you don't know how it's being um uh how it's being appreciated or if it's being appreciated at all but uh for that grass wall it was great to see hordes of people just running back and forth making the grass bend Mm. but um yeah so when did you start doing all your the stuff you're i guess the stuff you're known pretty well for like the the magnetosphere stuff with the particles and the Uh, audio visualization is that around the same sort of time that's oh yeah that was around the same time when i transitioned to processing part of the reason that i did it was because processing was capable of pushing more particles than Mm. flash could and so um, that's that's the most common reason. Yeah, it really is. I need more particles now. <laughs> I need Fifty least, particles is not enough. It's not enough. I need to add a couple of zeros and exactly. go to <laughs> And you know, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's really surprisingly uh, titillating to port a project from Flash into processing and realize that you've got a lot more room to to tax the processor. So yeah, you just mm. crank up the particle count and then, you know, why would you go back to Flash? You've got, yeah. you know, 25,000 real-time particles. Flash will let you to do maybe 250 if you're lucky. And so, back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. I know things have changed quite a bit, but... Yeah, um, no, you'd be 
hard push to get 200 image based particles in Flash back then. Yeah, back then. But now there's all kinds of tricks you can do. Shaders and. So you could get, um, you know, to get geeky for a bit um, in the processing. I mean, if you use like the the built in, like the 2D renderers, they're they're quite slow, aren't they? Yeah. Processing. They were slow, but still, uh, at the time, of course, faster than Flash. But uh, um, I got exposed because of that grass wall project. I couldn't get, you know, whatever it was, like 4,000 blades of grass running at 30 frames per second, so I was talking with uh, Ben Fry, and he suggested that I look at some OpenGL stuff, and so he did a quick mock-up to show me how that would work, and so that introduced me to OpenGL and eventually shaders, uh, and that made me even more excited because, I mean, shaders is, <laughs> shaders mm. is extremely addicting. Yeah. And, uh, and the fact that you could do OpenGL and shaders in processing made me love processing that much more. Was the OpenGL renderer in processing back then? Was it ready or was this sort of new experimental stuff they were doing? I think processing at the time was able to do OpenGL calls pretty directly, but, um, the shader stuff was definitely a hack for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how integrated it is now, but, um, you know, all you had to do was code to hack once and you didn't have to worry about it that much but mm. uh, um, once I started using shaders uh, I ended up spending you know 95% of my coding time in shaders and GL so that made it that much easier to transition to Cinder uh, because you know OpenGL and shaders were going to work the same way in C++ as it do in Java. So tell me about Cinder for people who don't know what it is perhaps you could just give an intro. Uh, Cinder is a uh, is a C++ framework that was created by Andrew Bell who I worked with at uh, the Barbarian Group. He is now uh, he's heading up the interactive department at the Mill in New York um, and Cinder basically represents some you know decade plus of his personal uh, C++ code libraries but he's been coding C++ for such a long time that these libraries are just really solid. Mm. So uh, while at Barbarian Group, he decided to just make it an official release instead of just something that he and I you know, worked on to make uh, the iTunes visualizer. Why not release it and let the public contribute to it, make it open source, and, um, and don't limit people who want to use it for client work. And um, it's, you know, for, uh, for people who are familiar with open frameworks, it's, it's just a, a different version of open frameworks. Uh, um, but the, for me, it was extremely useful knowing Andrew because he sort of pushed me into the world of C++. I would ask him uh, Java questions, you know, how do, I, how do I deal with this Java issue? And he would say, I think you might do it this way, but, you know, if you did it in C++, not only would it be easier, but I would be able to help you figure <laughs> it out. So he kept uh, uh, sort of goading me into switching over to C++ so that he could be a more effective tutor for me. And I eventually took him up on it, and he's been extremely invaluable for getting me up to speed on things like pointers and references and yeah. all the, the really sort of gross but super useful aspects of C++. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I assumed that because Cinder is relatively new that it might not be that mature, but if it's been just part of Andrew's code library for years. It's uh, it's surprisingly full-featured. There's uh, He's about to put out another release, I think, uh, at the beginning of next week that's going to have um, some new features for doing texture-based fonts and uh, uh, timeline animation. Mm. Um uh, which will be very useful for the stuff that we're doing on iPad because coding up UI without... I mean, that's the one thing that really makes me miss Flash is Flash made dealing with creating UI much easier, but in C++ or even processing, you yeah. have to kind of make your own buttons, you have to do your own sliders or use somebody's library, and it uh, can get really frustrating. But um, uh, I mean, I find that with, with all things that aren't Flash, 
is that there just isn't really... I mean, I was so used to just putting things in the timeline, just chucking it in. Right. And so, I mean, with the the recent Open Frameworks project I did, I was really pleased to have the, the, the simple GUI. Yeah, simple, simple GUI is fantastic, um, but not full-featured. No. It was good for doing parameterization of variables. Yeah, of course. But, just, uh, it's just a quick way of yeah, getting your settings to be adjustable, but not, not sort of user-friendly. Right, and I, th- I think... Even now, uh, there is not an iOS port of Simple GUI yet. Right. Uh, hopefully, that'll be out soon because that would be very useful for anybody who wants to make just you know random art apps. It'd be mm-hmm. great to not have to not have to deal with um, like the Cocoa Objective C sliders. Uh, mm. Yeah, don't get me started on Objective C. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty hard to read if you're not used to it, isn't it? I, yeah, if I never have to code anymore. Objective C, it'll be too soon. <laughs> I got burnt out on that during the the le petit dummy days. Yes, which is brilliant, by the way. Thank you. I, really I wish the rest of the world thought so. Well, we'll, we'll stick a link to it. And, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so, but you started off as a sculptor, right? Well, yeah, I suppose college. that's true. Is that, I mean, did you? I mean, did you? Did you play with computers when you were a kid? Did you do programming? I, I did. I did not do any programming. Uh, programming. Well, no, that's not true. So my dad. Uh, Sort of embraced the PC pretty early on. Uh, I remember him having, you know, what the, like a eighty eighty six or I don't know some really old, really slow four color thing that I didn't use much except to play those uh, text based adventure games like Zork and uh, all the Infocom games. Uh, and I'd mess around with Deluxe Paint or Deluxe Paint Two with color cycling animation. Did and you that get was... that on the PC? I only yeah. had it on the Amiga. So. Yeah, you could get it on the PC. Uh, my dad even to this day, is still very much a PC guy. So right. he taught me early about computers, but the only programming I did was, um, was he had a, a subscription to PC World magazine, so like every issue typed there'd be... Typed in. Yeah, type typed in. it in. And it was so tedious <laughs> to the point of having somebody else with the magazine read it out to you while you like double-check why it won't run. And, and then yeah. you do run it, and it's just a line bouncing around <laughs> the screen. And uh, you know, it would take eight hours to type it in. Uh, so that was the only programming I did was basically just transcribing other people's code. But um, I went to RISD for um, to be an artist, and I so bounced. I know what that is. RISD, uh, that's the Rhode Island School of Design. Oh yes, I have heard of that. Yes, that's where uh, that's where John Maida went right. to be president after leaving MIT. Although I hear he had some some hard times there. I think did he's, he? I think he's been either. Uh, told to leave, or he got a vote of no confidence recently, and I'm not surprised because the the RISD teachers, have, a lot of them are very sort of old school, traditional, and if you try to put computers into the equation, they tend to get a little ornery mm. because that's not the that's not the right way to do things. And mm. even when I was at RISD up through what '94, uh, um, the only place to learn anything about computers was uh, to do you know like an audited class through the photography department, which taught people director so that they could do a photo based portfolio after they graduate but even in graphic design it was frowned upon to do anything with computers but um i went to i went to RISD uh thinking i was going to be a painter and then uh like within the first year and a half i managed to switch majors to i think i switched to illustration and then i switched to industrial design and i did industrial design for about a year and a half and then switched to sculpture because i didn't know what i wanted to do (laughs) i knew i wanted to be creative but uh you were was, trying to find something that suited you. I was trying to find yeah. something that suited me, and it was just a bunch of like really n- new, shiny objects for me. I didn't even mm. know about industrial design until I went to school. And uh, um, 
you know, I almost switched majors to glass blowing because that looked like fun. It would have really been a bad idea. That was for as me. shiny as you could get, really. Yeah, pretty much. But <laughs> try paying back, you know, eighty thousand dollar RISD loan with a glass blowing skill. That's, I don't. Yeah. That would take a you long. Have to time. make a lot of ornamental skulls. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make the little crystal birds to hang off our Christmas trees. Um, so uh, at the somewhere during the beginning of my junior year, I switched to sculpture because my thinking was if I don't know what I want to do. I could just call it sculpture and, you know, I might get a bad critique, but nobody could accuse me of not doing the assignment. So um, <laughs> I spent my first semester of being a sculpture major just making um, lighting design, which is what I wanted to do in industrial design, but they wouldn't let you focus on your own stuff until after your, your I think maybe like your second, or first semester of your junior year, then you can do your own things. But I already knew I wanted to do lighting. Yeah. So I went and made lights in the sculpture department and uh, I didn't much care for it. And then my senior year, I, I, I saw the uh, GaboCore flash site, and um, that uh, made me realize for the first time that the computer could be an interesting medium for doing art. So I talked to my senior thesis advisor and said, I'm not really interested in making sculpture, and you probably know that by now from seeing <laughs> the work I've been turning in. I really want to do work with computers, and it's obviously too late for me to change my major. So he was very understanding and uh, allowed me to spend my senior year learning Photoshop and Flash because he could tell that that was where my interests were, and, and that's how it all began. Interesting. Flash so, 3. So you started off like creating with Flash, presumably, and Photoshop, making art and images, but at what point did you start noticing, oh, what's this script stuff? Oh, man. Uh, was that still at college, or was that later on? No, that was probably after, yeah, that was after college, mm -hmm. uh, because Flash, to me, was just a timeline animation tool, yeah. and I was making, you know, stuff fly across the screen, and it was all very easy, and then I started to see people post... Um, uh, their FLA files, and it would be, I think the first one that really just shocked me was, uh, it was a, uh, a cube of spheres that had depth sorting, yeah. and like sine, cosine, lookup tables, and so when I opened that up and saw what he had to do to make that effect, I realized that I probably needed to learn some scripting, because at the time it was just, you know, go to frame number and play. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know any trig, I didn't know I just didn't understand the concept of how to do math for computer-based visuals. Sure. So I, I started to look at some of the source code that, uh, that Josh Davis was putting out and just you know changing variable names to see if I could do that and still make it run. And, yeah. Uh, and then that was, that was how it all began. Quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of, um, you know, even like Josh, you know, he started doing Flash and he's like, what's this script stuff? And it's like very interesting that there was this tool that encouraged so many creative people to take up programming. I'm just w wondering right. if there is such a smooth path for artists to become programmers now, I guess the equivalent is processing, but you have to kind of make that decision yeah, to be a programmer really rather do. than just be working in a tool and just go, oh, what's this? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the tool evolved into something that kind of forced you to learn coding or scripting. Uh, now, I mean, I guess it's a little easier because you can learn it in school. You, know, you could learn it in art school. I know RISD is teaching full-on uh, like interactive multimedia coding classes, and there's probably a processing class at RISD too. Um, and that would definitely help a lot of artists embrace coding. Mm. Um, I, I kicked and screamed for a really long time, but I knew that it, I, it was something that I would have to learn in order to stay relevant in that field. Do you think that because you weren't initially, you know, a you know, you weren't, you didn't become a programmer because you're interested in programming, 
I find that very interesting and I sort of, I guess I became a programmer because I had a BBC Micro at home that my dad brought home from college and um, and I wanted to have little pictures and mm. animated characters and I, you, I didn't have any, I didn't even have Flash or anything, I, I didn't have any art packages I had to, <laughs> so sad. but it wasn't because I had loads of time, I was like what? 12 I didn't have any friends really. <laughs> so you started you started coding at that early of an age, or yeah, scripting, was, or whatever. It was eleven or twelve. It was BBC 12? Basic, and to get little pictures in, I had to get the little, I had to get my graph paper and draw the little squares, <laughs> and figure out each strip, what binary number it amounted wow. to, and I had these little characters. So I don't even know. I, I remember at school writing an adventure game. I yeah, tried that once. And uh, I think I spent more time on drawing the school. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And then for the final sequence where the school blows up and falls down. You know, if you do that now, they arrest you. Well, I mean, it's a really, (laughs) really (laughs) terrible adventure game. The idea was that you had to go all around the school and find parts of a bomb that you then put together (laughs) and blow up the whole school. It's a very different time these days. You didn't uh, you didn't get in any trouble for that? No. Not even any like so. like what? psychiatry or... <laughs> I remember being asked to go to the computer lab to figure out why one of the computers wouldn't work and of course it was because it wasn't even plugged in. And... <laughs> Let's turn it off and on again. Turn it off and on. <laughs> and and if you fix a computer and you're that young, you're you know child genius. So maybe yeah. that helps plant the seed that computers sure. would eventually be my future. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That you know you do need that little. You never quite know, but there's always something that just clicks right yeah. at an early age, even if it's quite subtle like that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was my A levels. I just picked A levels are when you're what sixteen. So it's sort of like a A levels. That's a yeah. So an exam. It's a, a tied for exam, and you usually okay. do three, or I think these days you can do up to five, but when I was at school, you'd do three A-levels, so that would be that point you specialised. Is and that like the equivalent of the American SAT test? Or? Maybe. I don't know. So you'd have to take these three tests in order to go to university? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you'd pick your subjects, and I just basically picked the subjects I wanted to do, which was oh. art, okay. computer science, and maths. <laughs> and of course, they were wow. just, to my teachers, I was mental. They were just like, why are you doing these free... Like, well, it was just the fact I was doing computers and art. Right. Two completely unrelated Those subjects. Those things will never overlap. It was just, how can it possibly... So, you know, I feel a little bit smug by that, although... It's a good, good did, decision on your part. Yeah, but it wasn't really. I'd love to think it was because I was so... I could see the future. It was so <laughs> insightful. The truth was I just chose things I wanted to do because I was a bit stubborn. Just, just want to do what I want to do, really. But yeah. I didn't... I got a D in art because... <sighs> I used, computer. I used a computer. Oh. So it was like an, an Archimedes, Acorn Archimedes with this old, it was quite a cool paint package. So I, put, I did this fine, you know, this still life with a computer. And they said no, sorry. They did, I think their heads exploded. Oh, that's so sad. Pretty much. Is there anything else about your history that you <laughs> want to talk about? Uh, I think what I'm finding okay, more and more as, a, as I speak at conferences and maybe talk to people afterwards or just the emails that I get is that people assume that I'm um, an extremely good coder and an extremely good mathematician when that's actually pretty far from the truth. I'm really good at iterating. Right. Uh, and, you know, like if even just if a first year computer sci student tried to have a conversation with me, a proper conversation about C++, uh, I probably 
would just shrug, like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I do a lot of copy and pasting from other files I know worked that I'd written, and mm. um, and it's just, it's constantly beating my head against the wall to get it to run, but I'm really good at beating my head against the wall, yeah. and I don't tire of that. So it's that tenacity. I, I see yeah. that in your work, that iteration and the attention to detail and the polish, and to me, that's like sculpting, right? It, well, yeah, there's there's a sense of sculpting, yeah. I mean, because a lot of the coding... away and chipping away. Exactly. Well, it's additive and subtractive. You, right. you add a bunch of code and then you pull out the stuff that doesn't make sense anymore. It's more like clay. It's more like clay. Sort of plasticine. Don't know. Don't Fine about plasticine. I still just do not like the smell of plasticine. It feels kind of weird. Doesn't it doesn't it? wash yeah. off your hands and yeah. your nails turn reddish brown. And yeah, that's absolutely right. Flashbacks. <sighs> I know. So I think that's interesting. And Joel and Pete um, said that, or Joel in particular last week said that, you know, once you realize you're a crap programmer, you know, it sort of it saw all this amazing open source code and he was like, oh, I can never do anything that good. And then he realises that that's all been tidied up for public consumption and that right. most programmers just, just get together yeah. and get it to work and that's quite liberating, isn't it? Uh, it is until it's time to uh, to release it as an open source project, and yeah. then it's just neuroses. Like, oh, it's not good enough. Yeah. Not enough comments. This yeah. is obviously the wrong way to do this one bit, but I don't know the right way. Do yeah. I want to share that <clears throat> incorrect way with other people? And I know Joel's thinking is that just put it out there. Just put all your code out there, and and I secretly agree with him. Yeah. But I'm too much of a of a, of just self-conscious control freak to want to put out code I know is not optimized and I know is not the the established way of doing things. It just makes me nervous because then yeah. you get a bunch of emails from people saying, this isn't working quite right for me. How should I fix it? And then you're on the hook for, you know, for for doing updates and maintaining it. And uh... So it's not so much that you don't want to release your stuff because it's not a nice thing to do. It's just more because for other practical reasons or because you don't you know not sure about it it's it's a combination of of not being sure that that it's a good idea to teach people incorrect ways of doing things mm. and also just time i find that I'm, I'm too easily distracted by the next thing i want to work on to want to go back and clean up the thing that i know is working but not pretty sure so um it's something i do want to do more of and i've done a few tutorials for cinder just to try to get back into that mindset of of coding something for public release mm. and i know i don't do enough of it but um you know, the other aspect of that is it's difficult for me to find a good stopping point with my work. And I'm sure you probably have the same issue where, you know, the thing that you're working on is something you've probably been working on for a while and can see fine-tuning for the immediate future. So yeah. it's hard to find a stopping point where you say, this is this is a finished thing that I'm going to put out there. Um, and I'm really bad at that. I Everything feels incomplete. It's not ready yet. It's, it's not, not ready, ready yet. yet. It's, it's not, not ready, ready. You just got to do this one more thing, just one, just one more thing. Right. And it was kind of working with clients, with client projects that I sort of realised that I could let that go a little bit. Still hard, but you hard. just have to accept that what your vision of your amazing project is going to be. You know, at well, some see, point that's... you have to say, okay, enough, my time has run out. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's why I have such a hard time embracing the artist title is because mm. to me, artists are people that say, this is done and here it is world. Whereas with everything that I do, I'm, I'm constantly like, I'll get to a point where I'll think this is kind of done, but then I'll see the eight things that I know I can make prettier or run faster. So no, it's not done yet because yeah. I got to fix those eight things. And that never ends. It is, yeah. it is an endless, vicious cycle. But you, are, you, you know, do you not call yourself an artist? Or? I, I stumble on that. I've had yeah. people say, you know, so, you know, what do you do? And I'm, 
That's the worst question you can ask me because I'm kind of an artist, but I'm also kind of a scientist and a bit of a mathematician. And uh, it's, it's rough. You, you have done a lot of stuff for galleries that you would I, consider art, right? That everyone else would consider art. Yes, yes, but reluctantly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I, so I've been trying to do more of that and I want to do more print, like limited mm. edition, generative print-based stuff. But um, it's, <laughs> it's just something that I need to figure out for myself I need sure. to, well the thing you said about client work i think the reason it's different is because with client work you're often presented with the end goal at least comps of what they want the end goal to be like so you have something that you're aiming towards with the stuff that i do it's often just exploration um and the pieces that i've done that felt the most like art were the ones where i knew i had a show to prepare for yeah. in a month mm -hmm. so i better start working on some pieces for that show uh those felt a little more uh, air quote art like yeah what do you think about like this new sort of medium this new digital art and you know it being in galleries and things like that uh there's definitely some impressive stuff out there uh i'm i'm sometimes bummed by seeing art put in galleries that just doesn't feel this is probably going to come back to bite me in the ass, <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel artistic enough. Right. Like, it's, it seems like the obvious answer to a problem, and I, I don't want to name any specifics, because <laughs> that will just get me into trouble, but, uh, you know, when, when I see people put, like, OpenCV projects in galleries where it's just a, a feature of OpenCV that they've used, and not to any real artistic effect, but to people who don't know much about computers... Seems like magic. Yeah, they're like, oh my god, it can track my face. Yeah. That's amazing but it's like straight out of the box open cv so so that kind of stuff bumps me out but there's yeah. still plenty of really impressive digital art out there that what does it take to be impressive to you i think it has to be about the idea and not about the execution yeah um, if somebody has a really solid idea it doesn't really matter what they use to make it but i think the the digital art that tends to have me uh, sort of rolling my eyes and yawning is when it's obviously just um a, a neat trick that somebody learned recently and decided to just call it art and put it in a gallery but there's no greater idea behind it it's just i don't know the the bits that don't work for me are when it's obvious somebody was so enamored by a feature that they they didn't think to uh, iterate it. They yeah. they they implemented it, which is often such a difficult thing to do that you feel a sense of accomplishment after it's done. Like I've got this thing working now, but that doesn't mean it's ready to be released. It means yeah. you should continue messing with it until it gets to a point where other people haven't done it and probably may not even be able to figure it out. Yeah, like with OpenCV, if you just put a piece in a show that just you know, found people's face and, you know, like, blurted out. That seems to be a really obvious solution to a problem. I don't find it very artistic, but when people do things like... Or if they, or they explain, they're ex they say, oh, we're exploring the identities of people and how we become anonymous yeah, in the crowd yeah. and, and how there's so much video surveillance. And, you know, that feels have a like an afterthought. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's somebody who's, who's managed to who managed to make an effect and then wrote a story to back it up. Mm. But um, I saw some open CV-based work that I thought was really artistic and, and interesting, and it was somebody trying to fool face detection algorithms um, by applying makeup in, like, odd diagonals across their face just to try and find ways to to keep a facial recognition software from even recognizing that it's looking at a face. I loved that piece. I thought that right. was fantastic. Because it wasn't an obvious idea to me, at least. It was sort of subverting it. Yeah, it was subverting it. And, and it was, you know, you had to know enough 
you know, OpenCV or facial detection software to even rig it up. So right. they did that. But then they decided to think about that concept for a while, and they decided that, you know, in a future that's going to be much more about facial recognition cameras on every corner, yeah. what can we as, as a society do to prevent us from even showing up on the grid? And it was this sort of sci-fi makeup that, mm. that confused the system. So in 100 years, everyone will have weird, exactly. weird sci-fi. <laughs> People start getting tattoos bones. of, like, extra eyes on their forehead. Yeah. <laughs> it was something Ian wanted me to ask, was, and this is kind of relevant. It's the, sure. you know, with this digital art stuff, is it does it have longevity? You know, can, in a hundred years, will these things still be around? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, they're very sort of they're much more transitory than sort of a, a classical painting or sculpture. Well, I guess. Uh, yeah, see, I've got my own theories about uh, the the difference between the art that the that we're making now in the d digital age and the art that was made, you know, in the 1600s. Yeah. And part of that is um, the availability of, of instant feedback, I think, is a really addictive thing for people mm -hmm. where you start on a project and if you're not sure that it's going to be worth it, you post some screenshots to Flickr and you tweet that you're working on this new thing and you wait to see if people are excited by it. Um, but, you know, when people are doing masterpiece paintings back in the Renaissance, that was months and months of time working on a thing that they probably didn't even want to show until it was done, and it just made it seem that much more grand. Mm. So I think a lot of digital art is hurt by the fact that people are constantly getting feedback uh, during the creation process, right. um, and it tends to devalue the work. Surprise me with the end result. Don't mm. show me what I should expect in two months when you're done working on it. Uh, I want to see the finished piece as this unveiling um yeah but i think that's kind of more your process right there's constant iterations constant iteration constant screen grabs to flicker it never <laughs> feels monumental because i'm because I'm, you've always just everyone's seen that gradually grow yeah. along with you that's kind of nice too though right Being there's 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 definite appeal to having instant feedback but i think if your ultimate goal is to make art i think it can be too distracting there's there's no risk involved if you get crappy feedback after a week of working on something, then you abandon it. But what if, if you hadn't got that feedback, maybe you would have turned it into something really impressive. It might have been a valley of rubbish. Exactly. Before you get to the mountain exactly. of awesome. That should be the title <laughs> of my memoir. <laughs> Journey so, to the Mountain of Awesome. How, you, know, you, say that, you said before that you wanted more particles, so you had to move to processing. And, yeah. and I, I assume you're learning all the time about what's possible. And how does that feed into your creative process and your ideas? Uh, well, lately, since I've been working on uh, iPad development, I've had to tone down my desire to have the most particles ever because the iPad oh. is not the fastest computer in the world. So you can still get quite a lot of particles. You can. Sure. You can, but... Are there lots of particles in your new app? Yeah, it's, it's got some particles. Yeah. But I'd there's... be a bit disappointed if there were. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there, there's a few particles, not as many as I wanted, and, um, you know, you deal with aliasing issues. Well, on iPad 2, <laughs> 5,000. On iPad 1, I think it's more like 150, 200. The really? difference between 2 and 1 was surprising. Really? Yes. So what are you using to render stuff? I mean, you're using OpenGL. OpenGL, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. OpenGL, lots with, of vertex arrays. Cinders, and, you're using yeah, Cinder. it's entirely developed in Cinder. There's, mm. I think there's a few lines of Objective-C just to tie into the, uh, the iPad Music Library API, but um, it's, it's seamless working with Cinder. Just mm. toggle it to export for iPad and it just works. 
until you have to mess with the provisioning profiles and uh, the development certificates. And the well, 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 nearly, we're nearly finished. I just wanted to ask what's coming next for you. For me? Mm -hmm. uh, more magnets. Oh, yeah, you've been playing with magnets and have, sculptures and stuff. I have a few tens of thousands of magnets <laughs> littering my living room at the moment. Just keep your hard disks away from them. You know... I was uh, So I buy my magnets from this company, KJ Magnetic, so they have a really good bulk discount. And they also have a blog, and their, one of their more recent blog posts was they wanted to find out just how dangerous magnets were to hard drives. So they took a hard drive and they filled it up with text, and then they clamped two really large magnets on either side of the hard drive and spun it for a while. None of the text got degraded or erased. I'm thinking the danger is probably pretty minimal. Yeah. So more magnets, any more, more so-called art projects? So-called art projects. Uh, more work with Bloom. We're going to start on doing, I think the next thing is going to be a visualization of um, Vimeo. Uh, uh -huh. Just comments, uh, views, uh, tag clouds, all that stuff. Try to find a way to visualize that in a way that hasn't been done before. Mm. Probably using voxels or something bizarre. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to uh, continue working on... I'm trying to get better at doing terrain simulations. Mm. So uh, I eventually want to port a good terrain simulation over to the iPad. I'd like to make some sort of one-off iPad toys because I haven't done that yet. Um, you know, I feel like I've been in hibernation for the last year. Uh, well, not maybe not hibernation is the wrong word. I've been... Um, uh, journey of self-discovery? Journey of self-discovery. I've been learning a bunch of interesting new coding tricks. Yeah. Uh, I've been learning a lot more C++, but yeah. sort of in my own world. It's nice yeah. to apply it to a problem. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to actually have set goals instead of just sort of freeform code for the hell of it. Now I'm trying to make things, and that's really refreshing. It means that you actually, it's easier for you to know when it's finished. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Which, which I suppose this is finished, so right. thank you very much, Rob. You're, you're quite welcome. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, so that was really interesting, wasn't it, Ian? Yeah, a great interview, Seb. Well done. So which bit did you like the best? Um, <laughs> I have to say the thing about the, the, thing about the birds. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. you might not understand why we're giggling. It's because Ian hasn't actually heard the interview yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, so I'm sure it's brilliant. Yeah, so interesting things there about, I mean, particularly uh, his Planets app that he released um, is, is now in, in the App Store. And I think it got to like the top 10 free apps pretty quickly. So it's doing really well. Definitely recommend you check that out. It's really beautiful. Great. And I can't listen, I can't wait to listen to this episode as well. <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. Don't worry. You mean it, it was brilliant? It was. I mean, it was brilliant. They just heard it. <laughs> So thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you on the next Creative Coding Podcast. Bye. Bye. Cool. Done and done. <laughs> <laughs>